Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from OnShot.net. The INTO Congress 2021. All talk, no vaccinations. Every year during the spring break, the teacher unions host their annual congress, where motions are debated and they're voted upon, and usually everyone rocks up to some hotel in some random town in Ireland, along with the RTE cameras, and generally, like it's the only time of the year when the media pays any bit of attention to education, as they look for some sort of soundbite which will provide a smokescreen for the actual big issues in education. However, this year was different. In fairness, the media have been obsessed with education in sort sort of anyway over the last year with the pandemic. But there was no hotel this year. There were no cameras. Um, you know, but things that didn't change really. There were sound bites and there were certainly smoke screens. And in this special episode, I'm going to focus on the biggest smoke screen of all at the very very first virtual INTO Congress. And if I can get the technology working, for the very first time I'm going to throw in some sound bites that aren't from me into the episode. Hello, hello, you are very welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. This is Simon Lewis and I am reviewing the last couple of days of the INTO Congress, which happens every uh, April generally or around whenever the spring break is or the Easter break uh, is in the calendar. Um, I went to Congress just the once, uh, if I'm honest. I've been teaching about 20 years and I only went to Congress once, which in some ways tells its own story. And I was reminded as to why I never really went back after the first time I went when I tuned into the public sessions of the Congress online, which they stream every year, pandemic or not. And the best way I suppose I can describe the whole thing is it reminds me of an extremely long mass. Um, You know, you have the high priests who talk about how magnificent the church is and how progressive it all is and so on. And meanwhile, outside the church, you've people who've just given up on the church in practice, but because they were kind of raised in the church itself, they feel they have to keep it going somehow by like, you know, attending big events, like letting their, you know, kind of taking part in the sacraments and things like that. But apart from that, they don't really involve themselves. You know, they're the people you know, let's say, I don't know, who may probably spent weeks and months campaigning in favour of things like marriage equality or uh, in favour of the uh, abortion referendum and probably would have given out, and probably while they were doing that, given out stink about the church's stance on both those issues and and so on. But then the day after the the referendum passed, because both of those referenda passed in May, uh, which is actually communion season uh, for for those of you who live outside Ireland. Uh, I can't believe it's a season. Uh, It's not really. I'm calling it communion season. But uh, after the referendum, the day after the referendum, because both of these referendums uh, were passed on a Saturday, on the very Sunday, the day after, they were all, these people were standing in a church with their daughter in full communion regalia. So, you know, you know, those those kind of people, they're not really interested, but they just kind of take part in that. They will be the majority, I suppose. And then you've got the uh, altar servers. They go to church um, every week without fail, and they might not be happy about things, you know. Uh, so every so often, they get invited to go to a meeting 
about the future of the church. And they speak very passionately about the church. You know, things like needing women priests, making sure not to offend the poor father now. Uh, So they tailor the language to the language of the church. So basically saying things like, oh, we welcome all the work that the church has been doing and they're wonderful, how great they are and so progressive. But there's this smidgeny little issue with the church, which is they need women priests. You know, that that kind of thing. You know, it's a sandwich approach of being really, really nice and saying how wonderful people are before, you know, saying, I know it's only a little inconvenience, but, you know, that that, that kind of thing. Um, but, um you know, and, and, and basically what happens is the priest nods along, you know, take lapping up the, 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 the lovely praise for, for everything. And they'll all agree that this is a very, very important issue, uh, that they need women priests in the church. And they'll all go off satisfied that they've made a difference for another year. And meanwhile, the church does absolutely nothing about women priests and gets to claim that nobody brought up any other issues Um as well, because, you know, I mean, they, 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 they absolutely understand uh, that, you know, women priests is an issue and they'll nod along and everything else. Uh, but the other issues uh, that are obviously more pertinent, they'll say, well, they, they weren't brought up. Um, and it might be women priests one year um, next year. This year it might be the LGBT marriage blessings. But they actually won't talk about the fact of the bigger issue that the church as an entity is slowly but surely becoming irrelevant to the majority of its members. And while it's while it keeps going in the way it's going, eventually they're going to run out of people. And to me, uh, the INTO is really a mirror of that theocratic setup that, um, you know, and it's been that way for about a decade. Uh, it, it, I, I've uh, said that the INTO gave up its right to officially call itself a democracy in 2018. Now, um, when they ignored the members' wishes to reject the PSSA deal, um, and uh, but I would say I would chart the, the 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 downfall of their democracy from about 2011, because when I started teaching back in 2001, uh, when I went to INTO meetings, what the what happened was the members would tell their CEC rep who would visit, um, what the problems there were, what problems we were, and they brought them to the to the top table to the leadership and then those issues whether they agreed with them or not became the issues of discussion so it was a bottom-up um sort of organization the members told the cc reps what the problems were the cc reps brought them to the leadership and they were the motions that were brought on and democracy as it should worked but for the last decade the format of meetings now has been that the cec rep comes to these meetings the good biscuits are taken out, of course, and he or she tells members what the top table are doing. Now, the members are allowed to huff and puff at the CEC rep. And there's no problem with that. But it's now all decree. You know, the, 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 the tables have turned. The top table are bringing down the message to the ordinary members and they are told that these are the issues. And, and, and I know some people would argue with me about that, but... Um, the proof is in the pudding, really, if you look back over the last decade and then look at the decade before that. And this is why I would suggest that splinter groups have recently come about within the union structures. Um, When I started teaching, there were no lobby groups um, that weren't particularly overseen by the INTO, uh, with with an exception, which I'll come to. For example, the INTO LGBT group uh, or LGBT plus group, they weren't a group of rebels, let's say, in inverted commas. They were very much part of the INTO lobbying efforts. They were supported by the INTO, and rightly so. However, 
we now have splinter groups that are not under the control, in inverted commas, of the INTO. We have GLOR, which is, um, uh, you know, a group of INTO activists. Um, and we have the LPT movement. The LPT are lower paid teachers who we as a membership screwed over in 2011 by voting in favour of that pay deal at that time. We also have the National Principles Forum and so on. Now, rather than welcome their voice within the movement, like they did the INTO LGDP plus group, the INTO, and it's not just the INTO, obviously, uh, choose to make them out to be enemies of the union. Okay? And, you know, I, I, kind of, I kind of find this interesting. This has only been in the last decade. Rather than engage with these groups who are clearly are unhappy and have a following and have a message, and a message that isn't particularly um, against uh, the, 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 like the overall union's vision, um, because of who they are, rather than what they're saying, they've become enemies of the INTO. And, and to, to explain that a little bit further, recently, GLOR were referred to uh, by the union leadership as not being real members of the INTO, so therefore the union leadership would not engage with them. This is uh, as recently as the start of 2021, like a couple of months ago. A couple of years ago, the National Principles Forum were admonished from the altar, uh, in inverted commas, of every branch as being injurious to the INTO. Now, I'm only in my job 20 years, so I know this isn't completely unusual. For example, before my time, there was a group called the IPPN. You may have heard of them. The INTO were furious at such a group and saw them as a direct threat to the union. They saw them as possibly the start of a principles union, despite the fact that they never were set up to be that. And ultimately what they did um, was they responded by creating a principles and deputy principles group within its structures that they had control over and to be in direct competition with the IPPN. And unfortunately for the INCO, that plan didn't work and the IPPN grew and grew and grew to the entity that it is uh, and has been for the last decade or so, where over 90% of school leaders or principals and deputy principals are members of the IPPN, a professional network, as it was set up to be. And it took, I suppose, however, it you know, as things happened, uh, it took about 20 years um, of of, of effectively of a standoff, I would say. Almost 20 years, there was a standoff between the IPBN and the INTO. There were people that would not join the IPBN if they were hardcore INTO members and, uh, you know, very odd sort of stuff. But um, there was a definite change in tact, as we know, um, if you're a regular listener to this uh, podcast. And uh, tw uh, after about 19, 20 years, uh, the General Secretary of the INTO spoke at the IPBN conference for the first time, by which time, um, as I said, the IPPN is, had, has, I, they would say, matured into a, a different type of organisation. I would say changed to a different organisation. And, and really since then, the IPPN has now pretty much become the largest branch of the INTO. And ultimately, the INTO, you know, effectively got what they wanted. Um, you know, the difference between the INTO's principles and deputy principles committee and the IPPN is now zero. Um, so why am I telling you all of this? I, I think all this, all this kind of interesting background for me uh, for the Congress, because I think it's important to understand, you know, the structures of uh, the INTO, how it works. And while it gives this, um, I suppose, whiff of uh, democracy, in, in, in reality, um, it, it is a theocracy. And I'm going to use this um, episode to kind of 
try and give you an example of how that ha came to how that actually came to pass in this year's Congress in the biggest story of the Congress. Because this year's Congress had to be held online because of the pandemic. And unfortunately, it was preceded by the bigger story, which is a complete sideshow. While this conference should have been all about how the pandemic has shone a light, as, uh, as, as, as seems to be the, the common phrase, on how our primary education system has suffered as a result of all the various cuts since the recessionary times and the swathe of initiatives that have, al have been allowed to happen, such as DRIHID, SSE and so on, as well as an expansion of the duties that the teachers and the SNAs now have to do as other services have basically dropped them, you know, things that were completely unqualified to do, yeah, and mainly in areas of special education, and, uh, but also in the area of disadvantage. So much so that when schools shut down, the children that suffered most were children with additional needs and children from disadvantaged backgrounds, because all of the services that should have been supplied to them by agencies such as the HSE and others have basically been distributed down to schools. Um, they're no longer providing services to, 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 uh, through their networks, so they basically said, all right, schools, you do the work. For example, occupational therapies and speech and language therapies, behavioural interventions, and so on, are actually not the remit of teachers or SNAs. We're not qualified as any of those positions. However, they've slowly over the years, slowly but surely been embedded into our work. A decade ago, when I had children that hadn't attended school for 20 days, for example, this is another example, I'd pick up the phone to the welfare officer and off she'd go to intervene. That's not what happens anymore. These days, I have to put in months of interventions around attendance strategies. Again, I'm not qualified to understand what motivates a child to come to school in any way, shape or form or all that. And... It, it, they've, and, and effectively, I mean, clear, it has very little impact um, bef before the EWO, as they're now called, gets involved. So again, this 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 extra work, this work that they were doing is now my work, um, and it's it's kind of it's kind of strange and unsurprisingly, children, vulnerable children particularly, fall further and further out of the system as early interventions aren't happening. School completion program uh, in Dash schools. Uh, um, is, is, is another example. It's all but disappeared for many children as time has now been taken up with paper filling. With uh, I call it now the form completion programme because it's effectively what we spend most of our, our time doing. I fill out forms which take uh, ridiculous amounts of time to do. They are, have to be processed by the people who should be working with the children and effectively there's, there's now children who are not getting, uh, getting, getting direct intervention from the school completion programme. Uh, another example, in order to get a NEPS assessment, back in the day, you would uh, you would get a certain number of NEPS assessments, but over 80% of schools are now a claim uh, from a recent survey from the National Principals Forum. It takes over a year to get a single assessment for a child. So again, teachers have to try and cope in the interim. Again, we look at violence. Violence towards school staff has increased because children are not getting interventions early enough. Even learning difficulties are going unchecked. And these are the things we're actually qualified to do because teachers have been asked to do uh, to, to go off and do other stuff that they're not qualified to do in their learning support time. The majority of learning support, I would argue, since the pandemic, since we went back to school in the pandemic, has all been about social and emotional skills, which we are not qualified to uh, to do. 
instead of literacy and numeracy and various pedagogy that we are qualified to do. But on top of that, for the last decade, there's been a 15, uh, there was a 15% cut to resource hours uh, a decade ago, which has never been recovered. So we've actually, our learning support, we have 15% less time to give to children um, in terms of learning support. I mean, I could go on and on, and I am going on and on, because the pandemic has basically demonstrated how much schools are now relied upon to make up for the huge gaps in our in our society and in our system for very vulnerable children. Children who are not vulnerable, school is going kind of as normal as it would have been. But for children who have been who are vulnerable, the various cuts that have been allowed to happen over the last decade have made uh, children have widened that gap between the haves and have not. And with all the faff and bluster of getting schools open, especially for children with additional needs uh, from various groups, once they did open, all that advocacy, all that massive advocacy uh, of saying how terrible schools were not to open, they stopped caring because do you know what would happen? Teachers soak up all the problems. And the thing is, we might soak up all the problems, but we don't soak up the problems very well. We're not qualified to do most of the things that are expected and have been expected and put on schools. And this year, for in one sweep of a pen, 25,000 children uh, there are 25,000 children. Sorry, I'll start that sentence again because it's not making any sense. This year, there's 25,000 children on waiting lists for occupational therapy. This is a story exposed uh, by uh, News Talk uh, a month ago. And do you know what's going to happen? In a year, in less than a year, in one sweep of a pen, those 25,000 children on waiting lists for occupational therapy will be reduced to about zero. And why is that? Because the inclusion model, this pilot model that's been... Um, that's been done in Wicklow and Kildare. Um, it, it basically, the, the purpose of that model is not to improve uh, improve things for children with, uh, with additional needs. What it will do is we'll dump the responsibility for providing occupational therapy onto teachers and SNAs without providing any extra staffing to it. So basically, all those children who are on waiting lists to see an occupational therapist, what's going to happen to them is uh, this new inclusion model that they're doing is an occupational therapist will be assigned to a school. They will visit the school for uh, once a year, maybe twice a year if you're very lucky. They will tell the teachers and the SNAs, here's a few things you need to do with the children. We're totally unqualified as occupational therapists and speech and language therapists and all the rest of it. So we'll kind of just do a few bits. And, we'll have to do bits and bobs, I guess, um, in, in this. We won't know whether the child is progressing or not. We'll just be guessing. And then about six months later or a year later, they'll come back and they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, here's here's some more stuff so but effectively they won't actually see an occupational therapist as i said in the previous episode it's kind of like the way home this remote learning was um you know that teachers provided parents with schoolwork but the parents were just effectively aren't qualified teachers so they were just kind of doing their best um with what they had but they certainly weren't they, you know, they certainly weren't able to, um, you know, give adequate uh, pedagogy uh, to their children because they were relying on someone else to tell them what they did and they just did what they were told. And it was at a level that they were able to do where they didn't need, you know, proper qualifications to do it, if, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I as I said, I'm, I'm kind of going off tangent a little bit. I'm just explaining these are the issues that should have been discussed at Congress. But instead, a few days before the Congress, the government announced that they were changing... The vaccination programme. So the key workers and some essential workers would no longer be prioritised for the COVID vaccine um, that was, that's been rolled out. Thus putting teachers and SNAs who work in crowded rooms for six hours a day where almost no one wears a mask to the bottom of the queue. 
Now, naturally, given what you've heard about how important it is for schools to remain open, and naturally, given what you've heard teachers and SNAs now have to do apart from education, you'd sort of expect that the public, having heard this information, would have gone mad and protested against teachers and SNAs not being vaccinated or not being prioritised for vaccination because we need schools to be open. No. They didn't. Of course they didn't. And what I'll do is I'm going to leave it up to Harry Hill, the British comedian, to explain why that is. Uh, Marguerite said, is it okay that teachers and other school staff are expected to fully reopen schools in England on March the 8th but aren't being prioritised for vaccinations? Interesting question. Why aren't teachers being prioritised? Well, you know, what teachers forget is that we don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) We all remember them. We all remember them from school. <laughs> I remember, you know, as a kid, I'd be in the in the lunch queue, and yeah. uh, you know, you'd you're a bit naughty, and the teacher would say, "Right, you back of the queue." Well, now you know how it feels, guys. <laughs> huh? To be honest, it's the best explanation I can find. All of a sudden, despite the fact that nobody thought it was a bad idea to prioritise essential workers before last week, all of a sudden. Teachers are deeply selfish people that want to kill off their 65-year-old grandparents. And to be honest, the whole rollout was becoming a bit of a calamity with the HSE and Tusla, making sure that they looked after themselves before the rest of the population. You know, it's deeply important that a HSE accountant working from home should be prioritised over the same 65-year-old that teachers seem to want to kill. And at the end of the day, this argument is completely missing the point. Um, And this is what annoys me uh, most about this whole thing, that everyone has just gone off going, oh, teachers just want to kill off their 65-year-old grannies and daddies and mummies and everything else. The thing is, while some teachers might be worried about dying from COVID-19, the reality is that we all know we're unlikely to die from COVID-19. Our general population of teachers is quite young. And yes, the thing is, getting vaccinated would be very, very useful but not for that reason, not because we're worried about dying. To be honest, there should be the folks should be on safety measures for classrooms, such as proper ventilation, mask wearing, and so on. But the whole vaccination argument is so emotive that uh, you know that what they do, what what happens is people then look at they they look at the extremes, so they look at death, you know, because that's really what COVID nineteen. You know, basically the reason most people don't want to get COVID-19 is because they don't want to die. And no matter what, uh, no matter what, and doesn't matter how old you are, there is a risk of dying if you get COVID-19. Um, and, but the thing, I, I suppose, the thing is, vaccinating teachers or SNAs isn't going to make schools actually safer for the children. And therefore, you know, because it's not going to make schools safer for the for the safer for children because they're not getting vaccinated. So therefore they can catch COVID-19. The general public really don't care. They care about their children. They don't care about their teachers. They don't care about the SNAs really. However, every time a teacher gets COVID-19 or is considered to be a close contact of someone with COVID-19, it means that that teacher or that SNA cannot come to school to teach your kids. And this is where I believe the crux of the issue actually is, rather than this extreme talk about, oh, you want to kill off people. It's very clear to me that people want schools open. I mean, no one, um, no one would argue that. I think if anyone suggests that closing the schools, you know, that we should close the schools again, because case, even when cases rise again, a riot might break out somewhere. 
probably in my own house. I really don't want for schools to close. And we've spoken already about why we need schools to be open on this and previous episodes of the podcast. And it's generally less about the loss of learning. The reality is there isn't really one reason why we need schools to open. It really depends on context. People need their child's school to be open for a variety of reasons, depending on their context. None less valid than the next. And whether that's because their child needs therapeutic interventions, as I've mentioned earlier, because teachers are not giving those and SNAs are giving those, uh, you know, wrongly, I was going to say rightly or wrongly, but just wrongly, or whether it's because a parent can't go to work because their child needs to be babysat or minded, or whether it's because it's the only time in a day where a child will get a substantial meal, parents need schools to be open for lots of different reasons, and none of those are less valid than the others, and I'm not criticising anyone uh, in those three examples. You may or may not know that while all this is going on, we've had a teacher supply crisis for about seven or eight years. It was at its very it was at its peak in 2018, and by the time the pandemic hit, there was talk um, of a pilot program for a few supply panels. Um, and before the pandemic, you know, what 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 we've been doing and what we were coping with for about five years is what schools did when a teacher was absent was their class was split between the other classrooms, okay? So three kids would go to one room, three kids would go to another room and so on and so forth, or whatever it might be. But the pandemic put a stop to that. Um, and that was, uh, and and because they put a stop to that, um, you know, this this caused a huge problem for um, for, for schools um, and, and obviously for parents because you, you weren't able to mix classes. And, but we still had the same problem of teacher supply. It's very, very difficult to get a substitute teacher. So the department, uh, what the department did was they increased supply panels of substitutes to a level that barely scratched the surface. And um, there are still simply not enough qualified teachers in the system to cover teacher absences, whether that's in a pandemic or not. So bringing that together along with the other issues, it means that if a teacher or a staff member contracts COVID-19, or a member of their household contracts COVID-19, or they become a close contact for any other reason, it means that that staff member cannot come to school to do their job. And it means now that a substitute needs to be provided. And because we don't have enough substitutes right now, what do we do? Well, let's think why we vaccinated frontline health workers. Frontline health workers are no more at risk at death from COVID-19 than teachers and SNAs. They work very closely with people potentially who have COVID-19. And the thing is, while the pandemic was going on, there was a massive problem that doctors, nurses and other healthcare workers were getting sick. Now, they weren't all dying. Now, some did unfortunately die. And, and, and absolutely, I'm not saying, I'm not belittling any of that. Um, but the vast, vast majority of these health workers were getting sick and basically having absences of a couple of weeks or they were a close contact of someone who was sick and therefore couldn't come to work. And basically over 99% of them weren't at risk really of dying, but they were they were certainly dropping like flies because they were close contacts and couldn't come in. So we vaccinated them first because, not because we were worried about them dying, but because 
If they contracted to COVID-19, they couldn't come to work and it meant that the health service was down healthcare workers, which meant that somebody who needed a healthcare service or someone going into hospital would not have someone working in healthcare to make them better. So the reason wasn't because we were trying to save lives, uh, the, the, the actual healthcare workers' lives. We were basically making sure we had enough staff there to ensure that something important in our society was happening, which was making sure that people who were sick were getting the care they needed in hospital. So, you know, similarly, let's look at teachers. I know society doesn't care whether a teacher uh, dies of COVID-19 or not, or they don't, uh, clearly they don't care. Um, uh, but if we don't have a teacher in front of a class and we can't get a teacher in front of a class, what happens then? to the children. They can't come to school to, um, you know, to, to on their own. They can't just sit there with nobody in front of them. And you need a qualified person who's guard vetted and has a teaching uh, qualification to be standing in front of them, or at least uh, if they don't have a teaching qualification, they're on their way to getting a teaching uh, qualification. So they have a teaching council number because there is a law there that you can't just put any which body uh, in front of a group of children. I mean, it's it's a dangerous thing to do. Um, uh, never mind the guard vetting. Um, but it's a very real issue. You know, at the moment, we don't have enough teachers in the system we are, have a huge shortage of substitutes at the moment. And if we lose teachers to COVID-19 related uh, things, we aren't going to have enough people to be in front, for the, at a very minimum, to be in front of a classroom to mind your children. So let me tell you what happens um, if a teacher, if I, if I don't have a teacher or an SNA in front of them. So my first step is that I have to find someone on these magic panels uh, that the government did. Now, given that each panel, I'm just going to tell you these panels. These panels serve, each panel serves 18 schools and there's three teachers generally on this panel. So three teachers between 18 schools. So the likelihood of catching someone on this panel is very slim. So, I mean, it, logically, I mean, if you have 18 schools and logically, let's say even half of them had a teacher absence, that's nine teachers they need. There are only three teachers on the panel. So six teachers short. That's just a kind of a general example of what happens. These sub panels are booked out weeks and potentially sometimes months in advance because these panels are used as well to uh, to um, cover uh, principal uh, admin days, which were increased uh, with no extra teachers being put into the system to cover them. Um, so effectively, you know, it's not really, you get lucky if you're, you get lucky if you get someone from there. So the next step is to find anyone, and I mean literally anyone with a teaching council number that isn't already working. So basically, you're looking at students in teacher training colleges who are often given a teaching council number, and they're basically not qualified. Okay, I mean they're they're training to be a teacher. It's like um, getting a trainee Garda uh, into solve a you know to 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 uh, to head up a crime or something like that. I don't know. I'm I'm not a Garda, so I don't know how that works. Or it's like um, asking a student doctor. Uh, to kind of take over a surgery or something like that. You know, they're grand. I mean, they're, and, and many of them are excellent people. And geez, I mean, I'm relying on them absolutely. I am absolutely relying on them at the moment. Um, but they're not fully qualified. So they're going to do an okay job. Um, as I said, you know, it's, it's it's like asking a first year medical student to provide to perform the complete role of a fully qualified doctor. You know, maybe a better analogy is because it, it's not really quite like that in a way, just to put it into, into you know, when you, get these people in they're coming 
they're coming in without a knowledge of what the class teacher was doing. So effectively, it's like getting a junior doctor to step in in the middle of a surgery without being told anything that's happened before in the middle of that surgery and the patients there in front of them kind of opened up. And you're like, well, uh, the junior doctor is like, well, what was the doctor doing before? Just, I don't know. I don't know. You know, <laughs> so they have to figure out where the class are, where the, you know, it's very, very difficult. So these students are very hard to come by, um, to be honest with you, because um, and especially at certain times of the year, because, you know, they're actually supposed to be in college. You know, <laughs> they're, they're, that's what they're, you know, I know their they're, they're college is remote at the moment, but they are supposed to be in lectures full time. And when they go on their teaching practice, which wasn't for some bizarre reason, wasn't uh, linked uh, into this COVID plan, um, they're not available and they're completely out of, the, out of the equation. So in April, pretty much every single college has uh, their students out in teaching practice. So they're therefore not available to do any subbing. So again, not a very deep pool of resources. So after that, the next step is to ask learning support teachers or your set team in your school to cover classes. Now, these are your learning support teachers. Every school has a number of learning support teachers um, and they've been cut uh, severely over the last uh, decade as well. So um, you generally have a few that you can rely on. Uh, maybe, you know, a, a school of 16 teachers might have um, eight support teachers, possibly if they're very lucky. So you have eight people that take children with additional needs. Their job is to really work with, uh, with children with additional needs and it's a full-time job. So basically when you have to take them out into your, into your classrooms, it means that children with additional needs no longer get support. Now, all the various agencies who were arguing for schools to open and um, who were, uh, you know, taking people to court, taking the government to court for schools not being open, What's happening is these children are not getting any of the supports that uh, aren't able to get any of the supports that they were getting because these are the teachers who have to go into classrooms because there is a teacher shortage. And when a teacher is not available um, because of COVID-19 or for uh, various other reasons, and we'll get into that, um, the set team is called upon. And once that's exhausted, because again, that can be exhausted, it seems that if the principal is an administrative principal, he or she is supposed to go in. And once that's exhausted, there's nobody left. And while that seems like a long list, and it is a fairly long list of people, there are, there, it's not a deep pool. It's, you know, basically the most likely uh, situation is that the set team will have to cover. And if you, if you imagine that you're a parent of a child with additional needs who needs sensory breaks a few times a day, your set teacher will not be available. Your child will not get the sensory breaks. That will lead to possibly behavioural issues. That will lead to possible problems there and uh, regression and so on. And maybe it could become to regression, aggression um, and potentially uh, disciplinary issues and so on through no fault whatsoever of the child. But what can schools do when they do not have enough staff? Let's throw in a few more variables just to make things worse, because so far you might be going, eh, that's all right. You know, sure. You know, it's very unlikely that half the staff are going to be out, um, isn't it? You know, through COVID. Well, let's look at some situations. Pregnant staff aren't returning to schools on Monday. And in many cases, that's a large proportion of staff. Remember, uh, as the Minister for Education keeps reminding us, most teachers are under 35 years of age. Um, you know, people who are between the age of 20 and 35 that's generally prime time to start families uh, and prime time to uh, to be able to have children. And lots of people, lots of teachers start having their families um, around, uh, uh, obviously under the age of 35. So there's a lot of pregnant staff out there. I don't know what the numbers are, but I imagine it's quite high. 
and there are not enough substitutes in the area to cover the people that you know that are that are pregnant. Um, so for the rest of the year, it looks like the set team are going to have to take on these classes because you at the moment it looks like pregnant staff won't be returning um, until the end of June. I don't know, maybe that will change, but for the moment, it looks like that's not going to happen. There aren't any subs around right now because everyone's on teaching practice. Um, everyone's taken up that would have been taken up before any long-term sort of leave. Uh, so therefore, the set team are going to have to take these classes. And I'm not even take, uh, and I, I'm not, and then I have to include staff that were considered very, very high risk. So those teachers aren't back and those staff members aren't, aren't back. And they're obviously have been covered since September. So that's more substantial gone. So it's really, really easy, as you know, um, if you're in the teaching game, it's very easy for a teacher or a staff member to contract COVID-19 given our work conditions. And even if we don't die, you know, at a minimum, it means a classroom won't have that staff member for at least a fortnight. And if there's no subs and we've exhausted all those other options, classes are simply going to have to close and children will have to go back to remote learning because their teacher won't be able to teach them. They won't be able to be in the building. So if the same school staff worker is vaccinated, and here I'm getting my point here really because I'm talking about all the problems here, but if that school staff worker is vaccinated, being a close contact means they would be less likely to have to be absent from work because if you are a close contact and you're vaccinated, you're not going to be able to spread the, it seems that you're not going to be spreading the, the disease and you're not going to be getting the disease. And while we have such a shortage of school staff this year, every single teacher, SNA or any other school worker is really, really needed if we want to keep classrooms open. And if you vaccinate them, the likelihood is if they become a close contact or they're not going to need to be out of school and therefore the children will be allowed to stay uh, in school with their teacher. And simply put, we can't have it all. We either prioritise prioritize schools to be open or we don't. We either prioritise children with additional needs or we don't. We either prioritise vaccines for school workers or we don't. However, all the above three sentences are intrinsically linked. And as we go back to school on the 12th, it is inevitable that cases are going to are, are going to rise because the science, and I use the word science properly rather than the Minister for Education's version of science, is that once you open schools, the R rate increases by 0.39 on average. And basically it is inevitable that cases will come into schools when there's high community transmission and we're going to see classes and entire schools shutting down and it will have been completely avoidable. Anyway, I, I've gone away from the Congress because what I was trying to do there was trying to explain um, what we should be arguing around vaccinations. Everyone has just gone to their extreme corners and basically said, oh, you want to kill off 65 year olds. Oh, why does a 20 year old SNA, uh, you know, SNA or a teacher uh, have to prioritise over a 65 year old um, retire or whatever it might be, rather than actually looking at the problem we're trying to solve, which is what we did for frontline health workers. The reason we wanted frontline health workers prioritise a vaccination wasn't because we were afraid of them dying, it's because they weren't going to be available for work to prevent the public from, from, from having the priority, which was not catching COVID-19. And in this case, we have a priority to keep schools open. The government say we want, we need schools open. The public agree that we need schools open. So in order to ensure that schools are open, we need to do whatever it takes to ensure that we have people available to work. But that's not what our union did for Congress. That was not the rationale 
uh, that they used for why they wanted teachers or school staff to remain on the priority list. And the only time I sensed a little bit of, even a tiny bit of passion, was when John Bull talked about how very cross teachers were, that the government broke their promise and that they would look after teachers in the vaccination programme. It just basically sounds like they were annoyed. The union were annoyed because they were promised something and they backtracked it without even kind of like, you know, there's no, that's the reason. Yeah, that's the reason they're sad. They're cross because somebody broke their promise. Do you know when you were a kid and your mum said, oh yeah, I promise we'll go to McDonald's on Friday and then something comes up and they can't do it. You're really cross because your mum broke the promise. You know, it's, but you know, you will get to go to McDonald's at some point. Do you know? But you don't see that in the time. Um, so you become really, really cross and and, and, and don't really think rationally uh, uh, about what happens and that's kind of where people are stuck I think in my in, in, in my um, you know in my opinion so they're really really cross and uh, about the, the department uh, breaking their promise and this is what they were going on about a, a, a congress and the minister pretty much stated that we might be disappointed but you know science which is likely the same science that she was using in december and january to claim that schools were safe despite thousands of cases daily in the country or maybe it was the science that they used to decide whether a case in a school is actually a school case or a community case which goes along the lines of and i put it into a rhyme because i think it maybe makes it easier if there's an ambiguity put it down to the community Something like that. I think that's the rule the the, the, the HSC are using for uh, the difference between school cases and community cases. And as I pointed out in the last episode of the INT, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the last episode of this podcast, the INT and the other unions can't actually take industrial action about uh, this this uh, kind of thing. So forget the rationale, forget the reasons. You know, let's just scrap that you know I, I i kind of wanted to talk about you know why we actually need schools to be open and how we can do that and why uh the 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 re- reverse on the uh, vaccination schedule or the change to the vaccination schedule has a problem but all that doesn't really matter because ultimately the the INTU know this they can't take industrial action be- uh, um around the um this this issue because of the PSSA 2 pay deal which we all accepted well 80% of us voted in favour of us we have to look at ourselves uh, as well as our as our union leaders we accepted this deal otherwise you know if we could uh, take industrial action we would have done it already and well I suppose why am I saying this now why didn't I say this at the start of the, the podcast I'm just very interested you know in how do I know that the INCO, like because you'll have say you'll say to me right now, but sure, look, a motion was passed to Congress there that their industrial action is going to be taken. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. But let's look, let's look at the reality here. Let's look at what really happened. Um, because I, I, you know, I, I don't just say things for the for the sake of it and don't do a bit of research into it. Let's look at what happened because I really have to hand it to the INCO on this one. They have come up with a brilliant plan. They know. They can't really take industrial action, you know, and I I know they know this. Okay, so what did they do? They also can't sit there and say to their say to their members, you know that vote vote you voted on. Oh, we can't we can't really do anything about it. So I'm I'm sorry. Oh gosh, I'm really really sorry. You know they have to look strong and angry and defend their members. You know, so they've come up with a brilliant plan. So when the news came of the vaccination schedule change, the INTO grassroots people were quick 
to send in emergency motions in time for Congress. Because you can do that. If something really big happens before uh, the Congress, you can send in some sort of a motion, uh, some sort of motion. Um, that's an emergency. Sorry, the pause I'm taking, I'm, I'm drinking coffee, uh, which is probably why I'm quite excited in this podcast. But anyway, I've, um, and I've read, a f- I read a few of those emergency motions that were put in place and they all went along the lines of the following. If the situation isn't reversed by the 12th of April, the union should ballot for strike. It basically, they, they, they talk about condemning it, they talk about blah, 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 they talk about all this sort of stuff. But in reality, the, the most important thing was, if the situation isn't reversed by the 12th of April, the union should ballot for strike. Now that's very, very, very um, important. Now the union leadership can't do this because inevitably it would mean they would have to ballot their members before the end of the school year and there and 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 right now members would vote in favor of this uh, motion and it would mean they would be breaking the PSSA 2 pay deal which would mean there would be a very high risk to the deal continuing so all the extra shekels that we sold our souls for would uh, would disappear and you know and if you want more details about that listen to the previous episode I recorded on why they can't actually take industrial action so what the leadership decided to do was to come up with their own motion. So the CEC rep and John Boyle came up with the same motion as all the other uh, grassroots groups, the other, the other branch committees uh, put forward, which was basically the same as the other motion, except for one important difference. And I'm going to read the Central Executive Committee's um, um, proposal, which was, uh, which was received just in time after the other motions and this is the one that was accepted by the leadership not the other ones which mentioned the 12th of april <clears throat> so what it says is it, it goes on normally part d is in the event that the government does not agree to the schedule and here it is by the end of the current school year vaccinations on the basis demanded above congress instructs the central executive committee to ballot members for industrial action up to and including strike action the key difference here is the uh, that the government does not agree to the schedule by the end of the current school year so let's say most generously that's the 30th of june so if the government doesn't agree to the to changing the schedule by the 30th of june they will ballot members for strike and this is key They've extended the deadline for the government to announce a U-turn of the schedule to the end of the school year instead of April the 12th. And to me, this is more than very interesting. The end of the school year, as I said, is the June the 30th. And by the June the 30th, all going to plan, vaccinations will have likely reached the first sets of teachers and school staff, probably the over 45s, which is roughly half of the teaching population. And basically that means that every single member of the leadership as well will also have had their first vaccination. Just saying. However, that's not the important bit. Because true to their word, if the schedule isn't announced by the 30th of June, they will have to ballot their members. So half of their members will have had their first injection or the first vaccination. Um, Pretty much, I would say 99% of the CEC themselves will have received their first vaccination, although I don't think that's important. Um, and but they're going to ballot their members. However, the trouble with this is members will be on their summer break. 
So they're going to have to, they can't ballot their members after the 30th of June. So the government will announce by the 30th of June, no, we're not. Uh, we, we, we said back in April that we're not, uh, we're not doing anything. Uh, we haven't changed our mind. So what the INC will do, will have to ballot their members. They can't do it during the summer. So they'll have to wait until September to actually do the ballot. And by that stage, the vast majority of their members the vast majority of members, probably 80 to 90% of members, will have received our first jab, which everyone pretty, which basically means everyone and everybody else will be pretty much done within a few weeks or a couple of months. So, I mean, knowing that we have twice screwed over the youngest teachers in the last decade, how many INTO members are actually going to vote in favour of this motion in September? And even the people who are going to, who haven't received, they know it's going to be a couple of weeks' time before they get it, or a couple of months' time. How many people are going to vote in favour of this motion in September? It's going to make a mockery. But it's a stroke of genius. It's wonderful. I am absolutely in awe of the wonders of this. The INTO there can't be accused of not acting against the change in the schedule for the vaccine. But they, they're doing so with the full knowledge that by the time the ballot gets to members, no one's going to vote in favour of it. Now, I raised this on a radio station the, uh, a couple of days ago, and I was called a cynic. And that's absolutely true. I am a total cynic. But cynic or not, there's no reason in the world why they would, why they would need to wait until the end of the school year for this, except as a, as a delay tactic. There's no other reason to do this other than a delay tactic. And so we'll all go back to our schools on Monday with case numbers pretty much the same as they were when we left them before the spring break with exactly the same safety measures and exactly the same lottery situation that we were basically in. Parents will basically then have to accept that their child could end up being taught by several different people before the end of the year and they may have to suck up the fact that their class may have to close if a teacher can't be found. But thankfully, Norma Foley, the Minister of Education, had some words of solace for us all as we head back into these uncertain conditions. You're on your own. Yes, the RTE cameras won't focus on any of the other motions that passed at Congress. There's been nothing really in the media about motions around special education needs or technology in education, which were massive issues uh, during the pandemic. There was a very small article I found about LGBT plus rights for teachers in the Irish Examiner, which was one small highlight, I suppose. Uh, however, all the headlines in the media are about one thing, how teachers want to jump the queue of the vaccination schedule. And it's hard to argue with Harry Hill or Norma Foley, we really are on our own at the back of the queue. So there we have it. That is it for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed this special episode f uh, following the Congress. We'll be back to normal service next week. Uh, so be sure to tune in every Friday evening at 5.59. Uh, actually, that was a motion at INTO Congress that there wouldn't be any more 5.59 on a Friday evening. Um, <laughs> broadcasts and communications with the Department of Education. I've always said it's not really the time that bothers me. It's what's in the communications that bothers me mostly. But this podcast, if you've enjoyed it, uh, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting app by searching for either on Shaw.net or if I were the Minister for Education. I'd really appreciate you subscribing to the podcast so that each new episode will be available to you immediately after its release. Look, please also feel free to review this podcast so others can find it more easily. Thanks a million for listening and uh, we'll catch you again next week. All the best. Bye bye. <laughs>